Welcome to the Live the Path podcast, where we meet real people leading unreal lives. The Reverend James Marsh is our guest today. He's a very well-respected part of our community and pastors two local churches. I wanted to interview Reverend Marsh because he has the most unique background of working as a Haywood County Sheriff's Deputy before taking a sharp right turn into ministry. In this 40-minute conversation, Reverend Marsh gives an inspiring account of his transition from lawman to holy man with some surprising insights that are essential for anyone who's thinking of making a major shift into a more fulfilling career. And now, without further ado, Reverend James Marsh. We're here with Reverend James Marsh today, and uh, Reverend Marsh is going to tell us a bit about himself first. If you don't mind, just tell us maybe where you were born and how you ended up here. Well, I'm from Ohio originally. Uh, When folks around these parts call me a Yankee, I say, no, I'm a Midwesterner. That's a difference. Uh, But uh, we've been in Western North Carolina since I was uh, 15, so this is home to me. And I am uh, a pastor at Mount Zion United Methodist Church and Fitcher's Chapel United Methodist Church. Yes, I'm a circuit rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, I'll tell a little story first about how we ended up meeting you because I think that's pretty interesting. So, uh, my wife Jill and I were uh, throwing this retreat back in the fall of 22. Uh, we had a bunch of people come in and we knew they were coming by car. And we were getting a little freaked out because as the retreat date approached, we realized we had not enough parking at our location where we're holding the silent retreat. And so we started calling around. We thought, you know, the most logical thing to do is to call the the church that's, you know, 200 yards from our land and ask if we could park our cars there for a couple of days. And that was an absolute no. Uh, And, but, but the, the good thing that that pastor did was, refer us to Reverend Marsh and he said, just give Reverend Marsh a call. And his church was a little further away, but at that point we were getting desperate. We had no idea where these people were all going to park. And so my wife called Reverend Marsh and I would just remember thinking as she was doing this, that there's no way he's going to let 50 strangers. And by the way, these were all recovering drug addicts and alcoholics uh, park at his church over the weekend. That's actually when they have church. And I thought, Okay, you can try, but we're probably going to end up paying for parking for these people. Well, uh, I didn't hear what Reverend Marsh said, but my wife relayed to me that he said, oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I said, my thought was, oh, boy, I got to meet this guy. And so long story short, we ended up going to his church. I met him. My wife met him first. And we now attend this church because, and really, he's the reason, because I thought anybody that is... um, that open to a bunch of strangers parking in their church and not really thinking about liability or what if somebody runs over somebody, what if, you know, blah, 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 all these things that I would think of. He just said, sure, no problem. And um, that showed a tremendous amount of faith to me. So I wanted to get him on this podcast and just learn more about him. And we know each other uh, pretty well, but there are some things about Reverend Marshall I don't know, and we'll hopefully get into some of those things. Anyway, so Grew up in Ohio, mm-hmm. age 15, moved here. Mm-hmm. And I do know a couple of things about you. But first of all, before we move on to what you're doing now, um, tell me a bit about your teen years. What were those like? 
Well, uh, so I grew up, or I was a teenager here in Western North Carolina, and, and Waynesville were, was my stomping grounds, and uh, went to Pisgah High School, Paper Tech, and uh, we, uh, it was pretty unremarkable, actually, <laughs> and uh, like every other kid, I, uh, I uh, worked at, you know, Hardee's and McDonald's and and uh, drove to work and work to drive and <laughs> wow, so pretty pretty normal mm -hmm. teen years okay and um, your uh, siblings any brothers sister I have a sister uh -huh. uh, she's a little bit younger than me uh, she lives down at the uh, coast of North Carolina ah right we we may you may hear our coon hound which I, I guess everybody who lives in Haywood County needs to have a coon hound. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a coon hound milling around the Paul Paul the, Paul Paul the poop coon hound is milling around the podcast studio. So you may hear him <laughs> talking. Um, okay, so now the the next stage in things where you ended up in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So uh, at uh, twenty three, I got bit by the bug, as we would say, and uh, I entered a career in law enforcement that uh, spanned 20 years. And uh, the last half of that uh, was as a investigator doing child abuse and uh, sexual assault cases and some homicides. Uh, ultimately, the last half or so here in, in uh, Haywood County. Wow, that is pretty extreme work. I mean, it's very different from pulling people over on the highway. It, it was, yeah. yeah. So did you actually do detective work on that? I was an investigator. Yeah. Investigator. Yeah. And so when, when there was a reported case of, of this, mm -hmm. you went and interviewed the people. Tell me, I, mean, I don't know what kind of work. I would uh, get reports uh, either from the family or from DSS. And, uh, you know, we developed a relationship with DSS so that we work together on things. And uh, I received quite a bit of training in uh, the, that kind of work, and we would uh, go wherever the evidence led us. And uh, uh, I would work; I would be assigned about 300 cases a year. Wow! So you had at any given time dozens, of dozens cases. of cases going on at a time. Yeah, uh, and then you would go to court and testify mm -hmm. and and try to do the right thing. Yeah, I've spent many, many hours in court. And uh, uh, um, there are, I have a fan club in the North Carolina Department of Corrections. <laughs> uh, you're being sarcastic. So you you are the um, result of a lot of people who are breaking the law getting into jail. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. And probably people that are safer in jail. Yes. Than out here. Okay. Well, um, that, that's <sighs> fantastic. You did that about 20? 20 years. 20 years. Mm -hmm. And... You know, one of the things that we love to talk about here at Live the Path is what what makes people change their path. And I, I off the hand, when I was thinking about your path that you've taken, it seemed like it was a very drastic shift. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us about that change and how that came about? Yes. Uh, so my law enforcement career came to an end um, in 2014. And uh, surprise, surprise, uh, that business is full of politics. 
and I had stepped on the wrong toes and I had raised an issue about uh, what I thought was some unethical behavior uh, by a superior and uh, was shown the door uh, and nobody would give me the time of day because I was a whistleblower, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I tried all of my own devices and efforts to try to resurrect that career. And nobody would give me the time of day. And so it was in the summer of 2016 that there was this moment where I finally reached the point of, okay, I'm not going back to that. And I was completely empty of myself. And I was a blank canvas again. So uh, when I found myself empty and all of what I thought I had poured myself into uh, was in the rearview mirror, and there came this moment where I'm like, okay, God, so what have you got? What will you do with me? And suddenly some things started to happen things that I would never have expected. And I will say that at the time, uh, if you'd accused me of being a Christian, there might not have been sufficient evidence to convict me. They'd have probably dropped the charges. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was at church, and we were at some kind of uh, Bible study and and in the discussion, somebody said, you know, James, you really know Scripture. Have you ever thought being a pastor? And I was like, I know this is radio, not TV. I'm like looking over my shoulder like, you talking to me? <laughs> yeah. Like, are you kidding me? You know James Marsh? <laughs> and, uh, of course, I brushed it off. And uh, But then a, a few weeks later, something similar happened. And somebody said, you know, you really... People really want to talk to you. Have you ever thought about being a pastor? I'd be like, oh, come on now. Really? <laughs> uh, but then the thought started to be entertained in my rattling around in this uh, steel trap of mine. And of course, at first I would say, no, oh, that's just my idea. That's just me wanting some, the search for significance, I called it. That was me wanting to do something meaningful like I had used to do, and uh, it was my idea. But then people would keep continue saying affirming things, and before long I couldn't overlook it. And before long it started to occupy uh, every waking minute of every day, and then before long it was occupying every supposed sleeping minute also. And in December of 2016, this had gone on for six months by now, uh, like I was laying awake at night, uh, reading everything I could find on the United Methodist website. I, was, uh, I had started asking people I knew who had experienced a call to ministry, because I knew you didn't just decide one day, hey, I want to be a preacher. You know, you, you have to be called, and and God calls people to to ministry, mm -hmm. and uh, I did not consider myself to be uh, uh, preacher material, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and I had baggage and I had, I had lived a rough life. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I had a pretty hefty alcohol problem. Uh, and so I called up my pastor and I had marginally been participating in church at Canton First United Methodist Church. Uh, and I called her up one day and said, I, I'd like you to tell me about your call to ministry. She said, be here at five o'clock. So I went and we sat down and I told her what had been going on with me. She told me about her call to ministry. And then she said, I hear elements of a call there that we need to explore. And I won't tell you that God spoke to me audibly, but I was struck with the most powerful conviction that God was saying to me, James, I could use you, except for one thing. You hate so-and-so, and it's the person that I blamed for ruining my law enforcement career. And so had I been able to find that person that night, I would have went to them and because I needed to forgive them. And I will admit that I hated that person, and my hatred of that person kept me warm at night. <laughs> and and uh, I would tell anybody who would tell the story. Now, even now when I tell the story, I won't use the person's name. Uh, so the next day I went to, to his office. And I went to the front desk, and of course, working there are ladies that I had uh, worked with for many years, and they're like, oh, Marsh, hey, how you doing, Marsh? And uh, it was like a family reunion. It had been three years. <laughs> it had been three years yeah. by this point, yeah. And it was like a family reunion, and I asked to speak to this person, and they're like, oh, he's at a conference. He won't be back till tomorrow. <laughs> so you were all raring <laughs> to like, go. I, I come. I came prepared to do what I came to prepare yep. to do. I said, "Give me a piece of paper and an envelope." They gave me a piece of paper, and I wrote this note. And I was bawling. And I said, first of all, I want you to forgive me for all of the things I've said about you. I've even called you a criminal. And forgive me for hating you." And I want you to know that I forgive you for what happened. And when I see you again, I will put my arms around you as my brother. And here's my phone number. Call me if you want to. You don't have to. And uh, I want you to know that uh, that you are my brother. And uh, Merry Christmas. It was Christmas time. And I put it in the envelope, gave it to the ladies at the front desk, and I'm bawling. I'm sure they thought it was probably a suicide note. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I said, he must get this tomorrow. He must get this. And so I left. And the next morning, that person called me and said, I want you to know I will treasure this note always. Hmm. And uh, and I had said in the note that I had experienced a call to, to ministry and uh, that uh, he said, I have no ill will towards you. There is nothing between us. And if ever you need help, you call me. If you ever need money for your ministry, you call me. And we are brothers. And I was free. Wow. You know, before you go on, because I know there's more to this story, but I, I know that there are a, 
almost everyone has somebody like that in their life mm-hmm. that they feel got they, they wronged them. And um, part of forgiveness, I think, is like you said, it's freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's not all about uh, people think, well, I'm not going to forgive him. He deserves blah, blah, blah. But you're actually keeping yourself entrapped. Yeah. It's the, the, the person who receives the most freedom is you, the person who does the forgiving. Um, and, you know, it's important when you forgive, clean your side of the street first. Because I hated him. And I had said awful things to people about him. Uh, I had anybody who had listened to that tale, I would tell it. And, you know, now I will not, because I've forgiven him, I'm not going to even tell you who it is. Uh, But, you know, first I cleaned my side of the street. I'm sorry for hating you. I'm sorry for, uh, would you please forgive me for the things I've said about you? And I forgive you. Wow. That that sounds like that was a very difficult thing for you to do. It was. Yeah. It was. But I walked away a free man mm-hmm. and didn't realize how much power that vengeance and that, uh, that uh, bitterness had over me. Mm. When was the moment that you knew that you were released? When I walked out the front door of the office, okay, so having given that note. Before he even had a chance to respond. Yeah, it didn't see, that, matter. that's the beautiful thing about forgiveness is it doesn't really ma- matter what the response is. Mm-hmm. You can forgive a person who doesn't want forgiveness or a person who doesn't think they did anything wrong. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the forgiveness is on your part. And you also have to be careful, and I've learned this through my time as a pastor, that you know, it's also not an if, if it's easy, it's probably not real. You know, you uh, like people say, oh, well, you've got to forgive and forget. Well, that's not even possible for a human being to forget. You can't forget. It's forever in your mind. You don't forget. Uh, you, But you're releasing your right to hold your hand at that person's throat. And somebody will say, well, how do you know if you've forgiven? If you see them in public and you do not have negative feelings, you know you've forgiven them. If you do not have negative feelings. If you do not have negative feelings. Because sometimes the the person that you're forgiving may not think they even did anything wrong. They don't even think they've done something wrong sometimes, yeah. So they're unaware of how they affected you, and Uh they're they're maybe even at peace about it. Um, So that's that's an interesting um, quandary because, it, yeah, it— Forgiveness, if you don't think about it, it, always seems like it has to be a two-way thing. But you're right. No, it's, it's not. Right. It's not. And in fact, uh, sometimes forgiveness does not also include restoring the relationship. Sometimes it's dangerous to restore the relationship. and But you still are releasing your anger, your hatred, your desire to see them punished. It doesn't necessarily mean that you restore the relationship and the trust. Mm-hmm. Because that might be harmful to them or you. Wow. Well, that, that's that's a very powerful story. So you and, and I know that you surprised your wife with this a little bit, the, the, uh-huh. the fact that you were not going to have a normal job ever yeah. again. And, uh, you know, and I had replaced the job from the sheriff's office. I was, you know, I, I had found a good income and 
And, uh, and, you know, but it was not what I was called to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one way you can tell if you've been called is resist and see if you can resist, <laughs> you know. Okay. That's an important point. Yeah. So you're saying it was almost out of your control. It was completely out of my control. Yeah. From the minute I walked out of that sheriff's office, I was not driving the train anymore. And at that point, the only thing I brought to the table was surrender. Yeah, we, we actually stumbled on this the other day because Jill and I did a, our second episode of the podcast was about um, do people actually choose their path or do they not choose their path? And we, we came around to realizing that um, this is something that's channeled through us. It's not as if mm-hmm. you know, whatever our gift is, it was granted to us. It's mm-hmm. not us. And so when you you're just a channel. Right at this point. At this know, point, yeah, right. I am just a, I am a, a servant who is yielded. That's that's it. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't I don't have an education. Uh, I did not have an education for this, other than my self taught scriptural foundation. Um, I'm receiving that, you know, through the. That's one of the things that the United Methodist Church is, is in, finds important is continuing education. So they are training me, but I would not have picked me. If I were God, well, you're being really humble because I, knowing you, you know, you have a remarkable knowledge uh, about the scripture, about Greek, about Hebrew. I mean, you astonish me every time we talk the depth of your knowledge. So there's different kinds of education. I think you're saying you don't have formal education. I don't have formal education, right? but you're, you're you're self-taught in a way that I think a lot of people that do have a formal education are not um, as good. So, so you 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 have just educated yourself and you know. Maybe you don't have the graduate degree, but you're very well educated, I think. Um, and and that was five years ago, right? The well, no, it was ago. more than that because I went through a two year process before I was appointed. So that was in 2016, mm-hmm. in December of 2016, and uh, I I came home and 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 told my wife, "Now, honey, <laughs> I got to tell you something. You know, now she married a cop." I mean, she married a detective and she, you know, and that's what she thought she was, uh, the life she thought she was going to have. Uh, and I said, I think I've been called to preach. She's like, now, James, are you hearing voices? Does your health insurance cover mental health? <laughs> and uh, she uh, didn't sign up for this. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize the position of a pastor's wife, and uh, it's a lot harder than you think. Please, if you have a pastor and you have your pastor has a wife, please love on her because uh, she does every bit of the work alongside him. And uh, people are calling at all hours, and and every time that phone rings, it's somebody taking a piece of him that's for her, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, she has grown into that role, and she's the most wonderful gift she's given me is permission to do this. And I told her when we started that she had she had uh, veto authority. If she told me I don't want you to do this, I wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but she has allowed me to, and uh, and I haven't been driving the train since. Uh, the funny part was when I started. Uh, I then started into a a process of discernment that took about two years. Now, what does that mean? Because for us that don't know. So uh, 
you know, I I then was uh, presented as a candidate in the United Methodist Church, and you go through a lengthy process of examination where they and the the question they want to answer for themselves and for you is, "Am I really called?" Because you will not be it it won't be successful unless God had called you. And uh, uh, you know, when I went and started telling uh, family members. I would always start the conversation with, okay, I'm going to tell you something. I know it's going to sound crazy. And when I told them, I think I've been called to preach, they would all respond. They'd say, well, we knew that all along. It took you so long to figure it out. Hmm. And uh, they they told me my grandmother, who is the most uh, significant person in my spiritual formation as a boy, she had told them when I was seven, I would be that I was called to preach. Really, but she never shared that with you. She never shared that with me. So you just, yeah, that's interesting. That left an imprint. Uh, she taught. She is, is at ten years old when I was old enough to read well. She bought me a uh, Vines Expository Dictionary and a uh, Strong's Concordance and and. Uh, taught me how to parse Greek and Hebrew words. And, you know, I mean, she taught me how to truly study scripture. That's where it came from. That's what what's laid the seeds. Yeah. Wow. And and that was your background before you ever were called. You had that, that programming yeah, built in. That programming built in. Yeah. And, uh, but I began on this process and, uh, I took a, uh, they subjected me to a psych test. I had never had a psych test in my law enforcement uh, career, but they subjected me to quite a significant uh, psychological evaluation. And they would grin and say, well, you got to understand Jim Jones applied to be a a certified candidate in the Florida conference. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they, they, he, he passed the bar on that. Like he, he did not. He, he did not. He did the not. Bar. They, they denied okay. him. So okay. that's, that's he, reassuring. He went, he, he went along <laughs> to start his own. Uh, he did. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it turned out poorly. But uh, so I uh, uh, was put with mentors, and my pastor mentored me, and um, had me leading worship so that I would become comfortable in that. Position and so people poured into me uh, to prepare me, and then I was appointed uh, July first of two thousand eighteen for the first time. Ah, and were the, the church Mount Zion was your mm-hmm. first church? Yeah, it is my first church. It's yeah, first and, church. and Fincher's Chapel. Mm-hmm. Now, is that is that fairly typical to have multiple churches? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of we call it a two point charge. They're actually uh, three point charges or parishes they call them when they're more than that. But uh, two point charges are very common, mm-hmm. where two smaller membership churches can't afford a pastor, but they can together. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I prepare uh, worship for Sunday, uh, and I go to one church at nine thirty and and lead worship and preach, and then I go to the other church and essentially it's the same worship service, you know. But the two churches have a little different flavor. But uh, you know, I preach the same sermon, and then I provide pastoral care for all of the folks in the two churches. Ah, okay. Thanks for explaining that. Um, you know, one thing that occurred to me just this morning because I, I was actually going to ask you. Um, tell me all the things that are different about being a pastor versus a sheriff's deputy um, investigating sex crimes. But 
it occurred to me that there are probably more similarities and differences. There are. And, and, and the thing that I don't want to take your, take your, um, uh, the wind out of what you're about to say, but it seems like they both deal with some very uh, critical situations that people have gotten themselves into or have had happen to them. Mm-hmm. It's people that are hurting and need suffering. That seems to be the similarity, but tell correct me if there's more. No. Uh, in fact, uh, people will ask me, do you miss it? And I'm no, I don't miss it at all. And I see the 20 years I did that preparing me for this. Mm-hmm. I have faced good and evil. And I have encountered people many, many times in true crisis. And that's what I've, and it prepared me for this time. I, I, I discovered about myself that I had, I had dealt with death so much that uh, it, it prepared me for dealing with death now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and it's, so when you go into uh, ministry, you think that people expect you to show up in their moment of crisis with the answers. And you realize I don't have the answers. And you, I've come to realize that's not what they're looking for. They just, you become for them God's presence in that moment. And it's the ministry of presence. It's just showing up. Right. Because you, you certainly were before in situations that were, um, there was no solution. Mm-hmm. And um, you are now the same. I see it every every week where we just have things happen, bad things sometimes. And um you can't. Uh, there's nothing you can do as as a human mm-hmm. to to make make it better. But you're correct that um, you and I'll, I'm say this as a receiver of the presence that you're offering that that is a very. It may seem like you're not actually changing anything, but it is a huge thing to be fully present with somebody yes. in their time of need, uh, yes. because at those times the feeling of aloneness makes it feel a thousand times worse. Yes. Um, and just reminding them they're not alone is huge. It's huge. Um, all right. Well, we, we have covered some amazing ground. Um, let me see if there's a couple of other things um, that we could talk about. And we could probably do this all day. So you you strike me as somebody that has, you, you took a pretty sharp right turn mm-hmm. from one career to another. Uh, two careers that really probably, they're not a whole lot of people that would share that those those two experiences in one lifetime. Um, what what is one piece of advice you would give to someone who maybe is having doubt that they're on the right path or not, and they're thinking about making a change? I would say two things. Um, so f- first of all, the moment that I found my calling was the moment I was empty of myself, as I mentioned earlier. And there was this moment I can point to a, almost a date. When I'm like, I got nothing. What have you got for me, Lord? And it was only then when all the noise was gone, all my own efforts to change it, to to manipulate the circumstances, to go back to my comfortable place. See, I wanted to go back where I was comfortable, where I had thrived for 20 years and where you know, I was a, a big fish in a little pond, you know, and and to to return there where it was safe and comfortable. And it was only when I accepted that that was in the rearview mirror and I had nothing left to give. That's the moment that the, the, the small voices began. That's the moment 
that the whisper, I got something else for you, something better. The other thing that I would, I would, the other piece of advice I would give is the moment you know that you've made the right decision. Now, now I'm biased, uh, and I know that there's a range of people who would listen to this. But for me, it's important to be in God's will. And the moment that you know that you're in God's will is when you surrender and you're completely at peace about it. I was going into a completely different world. I was it was no longer about my strength or abilities or or intelligence or anything. I was putting my hand in God's hand and trusting him to lead me where I was to go. And when I had made the surrender, I knew I I just it was okay. It was going to be okay. Mm. And I didn't need to know anything else. I didn't need to know what's step three and step four. I worried about step one, what you have me do right now, Lord, and did that. And then I worried about, well, okay, what's the next step? And do that and just trust. Wow. I I can't tell you how uh, poignant both of those ideas that you just expressed are. We, we were, Jill and I were talking about this idea of um, authenticity, which that word is thrown around a lot these days. And living your passion or um, living your dream um, buried in that those terms is I think narcissism. And I think with the, the first point you made, what you were expressing was it's not about you. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a narcissistic thing. You were, you had to empty all of that first. So it wasn't about that your, stuff was in the way. Ah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that that is a key point. I was trying to say that in the, the episode two of our podcast and I didn't do as good a job as you just did. So getting to a point where you are, you, you're empty of yourself, you're out of gas, you're overwhelmed. That's the point where you, you let yourself get quiet mm-hmm. and you said, what's coming up? And, and that doing God's will, it, it's available for you or that hearing God is available for you all the time, I think, unless mm-hmm. your head is full of noise mm-hmm. and full of self, full mm-hmm. of um, me, me, me. Yeah. So those two points are brilliant. And I think it, with your permission, I might actually use them to write a blog because it's just so perfect what you said. By all means. By all means. Okay. Now, imagine if you could go back to how the change happened. And I know that it happened over a number of years. But do you think back and think, well, I maybe should have done something sooner or differently? Or is there anything you would change about the transition? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. You say that with a lot of conviction. Because I would not have been prepared to do that a year before that, two years before that, ten years before that. You know, the, there's a human, there's a human temptation to say, "Boy, if I could have got to this spot twenty years before that, I wouldn't have wasted all this time." Well, the time wasn't wasted. The time was preparing me for this. And if you look at the the people God uses in Scripture. All of them are flawed, and he uses the most unlikely person. He uses the kid in the field with the sheep where his father doesn't even call him in when the the kingmaker comes to anoint the king, and he says, well, it's none of these. Who is it? Well, there's David out there in the field with the sheep. 
Well, go fetch him. We'll wait. And when everybody saw the, the shepherd boy, God saw a king rise up, anoint him. In fact, it says in that passage, uh, when man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And the very next passage is David defeating Goliath. When he was going to pick a leader to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, he picked Moses, a fugitive from justice who was at that time 80 years old, who had a speech impediment. That's who he picked to lead his people boldly out of Egypt. And when he decided to break through time and come be a human like us. He picked an unwed, peasant, poor maiden from the wrong side of the tracks so that he would be born into poverty as a refugee because that's who he picks. He picks the the least likely because then he can show his glory through their weakness. He picks crackpots, mm. vessels of clay. Mm. And vessels of clay that have often been pounded into submission. That, mm-hmm. you know, that Humility is built into that kind of greatness. I mean, it, it's pride is not part of that kind of greatness. Pride is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. It's Pride is me saying, I know that you say do it this way, God, but I'm going to do it this way because I know better. Right. I yeah. know you're the sovereign God of the universe and all. But that's what the root of all all evil is, is pride. Yeah. I'll do it my way. Yeah, I got this. Don't yeah. need you. Yeah. The other, the last thing that I want to discuss is it, it sometimes feels very difficult when we are charting uncharted territory. So like you said, you you you're first after you you decided to move on from the being a sheriff's deputy, you're your had you had the inclination to reach back into that comfort mm-hmm. zone, fall back into it really. And it's very hard to walk away from something that has been feeding you, not just financially, but feeding your sense of self, mm-hmm. feeding you know your 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 pride, your family. It's your identity, mm-hmm. and and you're you you throw that to the wayside, and you're you're marching into the unknown. One thing that might be useful to people listening who are who are find themselves in uncharted territory is what do you do when you have doubt? And I, I know I think I know what the answer is going to be, but. Let me know what, what you think, what, what what would be helpful to somebody who is doubting that they've done the right thing? So, and I think this translates to whatever path you're on, you know, if we're talking career or whatever. I was taught something in the initial licensing school that I've carried with me. And I was taught that when the times get tough, now, pastoring is not for the faint of heart, I will tell you. And there are tough times. And there are times where you come and you say, why am I doing this? Was this really just my idea? And I was told, remember the call. Remember that you were called. However bad it gets, remember that you are doing God's will. Remember the call. And so I would suggest to you if when the times get tough, remember that moment that you realized this is the direction that I should go and you had that peace about it. Remember that. 
they had us uh, they had us write out our call story just like I've told you. I, I, I we wrote that out, and they have us go back to it so often to remember when things go bad, when things get tough, uh, when you have to pastor through a pandemic, when you then pastor through. Uh, devastating flooding in your community when you pastor through the largest employer and your community shuts down when you pastor through the worst political turmoil in my lifetime and divisiveness and anger when you pastor through all that and it gets tough i remember the moment that god said to me james i can use you if you'll forgive so and so Very powerful. Um, yep, and th- those problems, uh, those those things that you just mentioned, the difficulties that can really, if you let them permeate your soul, they can take you over. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're talking about um, there, there's a self development leader, Tony Robbins, you may have heard of. But mm-hmm. One of the things, one of the ideas he talks about is standing as a guardian to the temple gates every moment that you're able to, and what that means is. Um, you, if you expose yourself to, to all those things that you just mentioned, and you, that was a, a good list, but not a complete list of everything that you know, we can pay attention to that's negative. If you let that stuff get in, mm-hmm. it's like trying to stand up in a tidal wave. Um, but you are in that moment that you're telling yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to remind myself and you have it in writing, thankfully of, what led me to come to this place and mm-hmm. the beauty of that moment and how um, it was the most real experience mm-hmm. of your life at the time. You just keep going back to that. In effect, what you're doing is you are sheltering yourself from letting these things get in. Now I know you're, you're, it's not as if you're hiding, you mm-hmm. are neck deep in these things. We have had deaths at the church. We have a lot of terrible things that happen. It's just part of life. Um, and, it's not as if you're saying those things aren't happening, mm-hmm. but you're saying I'm going to choose to focus on the reason that I that I ended up here, that beautiful moment that I felt as my calling, and that's going to be my core. These other things I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with, but I'm not going to let these drown me. These negative things. Remember the mission. Right. Right. And for me, the mission is make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It's easy. It's good that you have your mission summarized in one sentence. I, I think that's probably something we should all aspire to. Mm-hmm. What are you here for? Yeah. What is my purpose? Everything points to that purpose. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think we probably should schedule another episode. And maybe <laughs> when my wife returns, because it's it probably would be a very different interview with my wife here. And then um, at some point, I might trouble you to tell me the uh, the famous... <laughs> Patrol, you can tell our audience how your brand new patrol car ended up upside down in a tree <laughs> during during you making an arrest. I think that, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll do that maybe on the other podcast. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, James, I really appreciate you spending time with me this afternoon. And I think a lot of good is going to come in this. Uh, I think a lot of people will appreciate hearing your story. So thank you. For thank you for having heart. me. Thank you. Uh, this is Faramir Sadaji, MD, signing off from the Live the Path podcast. Thank you so much for listening again. <laughs>